0: I'm excited to get into today's text. So we're going to be talking today about the flood. And uh, this is actually fun. So Genesis 6, we're going to be starting in Genesis 6. If you are using the Bible that's in the chairs, it's going to start on page 5. Uh, I'm actually going to read little sections of the flood narrative all the way through. Uh, Now, just a, a quick kind of primer up front. When you look at the Bible, the way it lays out, so like the Bible as a whole, if I was to have like a, you know, the, the, the big, my home study ESV Bible, if I had it here, it's a thick monster, right? And uh, if I had this here with me, it'd, you know, I'd hold it to be about this thick. The funny thing is, the first few pages of the Bible, if you were to lay out all of the biblical timeline, the first few pages of the Bible are like this much of it. And then after the first few chapters of the Bible is like this much on a timeline. So there is a lot of history and information and, and man, even perspectives and views that you can explore in the first couple chapters of the Bible. Now, I want to be clear going into the flood narrative. Even as I was studying this in detail, going back and reading through stuff I'd read over the years, uh, Nate and I, we were actually down at the Ark here recently exploring some of that, the Ark encounter. It's kind of fun going through that. I get it. There are people here today, there are people watching online, you would love for me to spend all morning talking about the seven different flood historical accounts from different histories and nations and people groups. You would love for me to do that. I have people here today, you would love for me to spend the whole morning talking about what in the world were the Nephilim. I have people here today, you would love for me to talk about whether it was a global flood or a local flood. I have people here today, you would love for me to talk about the time distance. between. I get it. There are so many different angles I could take on this. So let me just be really clear. You don't need to email and ask the question, have you ever heard of the Nephilim? I'm not spending time on them because the scripture doesn't spend significant time on them. It doesn't mean they're not interesting, and it doesn't mean it's really fun to explore, because it is. (laughs) But what I want to try to do today is I want to try to keep the main idea through the flood narrative, the main idea that we focus on, not ignoring the other interesting pieces, but spending the primary time that we give to the primary idea that's offered in Scripture. Does that make sense? So if you're really curious about all of these other rabbit trails, many others that I didn't even mention. In fact, the Great Rebellion is another super interesting one. Dan and I were talking about that earlier. Really interesting to read about. And the influence of maybe fallen divine beings and how they taught humanity to do even more evil. That's so interesting. Don't go there, Mike. Just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. So as I work through the flood narrative, if you're interested in all those other things, you are more than welcome to run down those rabbit trails. But this morning, let me focus on what the scripture appears to focus most on in the flood narrative. The main idea of the text is our main idea this morning. All right. Years ago, I was uh, sitting in my house with my family And uh, as we were hanging out, getting ready to have dinner, so this is before the little girls were born. It was just the uh, now older three kids. They were really little at the time down in Texas. And we sat down at the dinner table, and the tension was really high. I don't know if you've ever had like a bad family night. So you know those nights when you sit around the table, and you're getting ready to eat with your family, and and you honestly think, I do not want to be with you all tonight. Have you ever had those nights? I'm sitting at the table, and Leslie brings over a meal that she had prepared. She sits it down. This is years ago in Dallas. The older ones are really little at the time. Puts it down in front of the kids, and one of my children, I won't say who, and I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but the statement was basically like, that's gross. I don't want that. And the tension was already really high around the table. So as soon as that was stated at confession time, I just, I didn't, I didn't do this, but I, I had the desire just to spank everybody, even the dog. Like, I just, I was done. I was done. I was done with the grumpy. I was done with the bad attitude. It just it was a bad night all the way around, and then this, like, outburst of disrespect about sent me over the edge. Now, um, later on, after dinner was done, and I started having conversations with the kids, I was able to follow the chain of events that led to that really frustrating dinner. Earlier in the day, one of my children had something happen at school that made the individual, feel really bad. When they got home, they still felt bad about it and ended up spilling out the bad day on their sibling, which inevitably led to them fighting. Like, you know, so the grumpy child is now grumpy with another child, and then they start to fight over a toy, which makes them in conflict. So now they're in conflict. I'm trying to finish up my day. Every young family is going to go, I get this. Right, or maybe you remembered if you're older or with your younger kids. And in that moment of tension when the two little ones were fighting, my wife was in the middle of making dinner. And she was now increasing in frustration with me because I was still trying to finish up work. And she's going, I need help with the kids. And I'm like, I can't. i got to finish work. And she's like, they're going to kill each other. Right, so... Fine, okay, so now she's frustrated with me because she's overwhelmed. She needs help with the kids that are fighting because a kid made fun of him earlier in the day and it spilled out with that child. So I'm following the chain of events, right? And now I go in there, I, I, I stop the fight. The tension is high with mom. I'm frustrated because I didn't get to finish my work day. I'm settling down this fight. And then all of a sudden, the baby, who would have been Emma at the time, like needs a diaper change. So then it's like, stop fighting, go change the diaper, come back, and then dinner time. We sit down at the dinner table together, and inevitably, underneath the table, somebody does a kick. Which erupts in all more, like all this other frustration. And then, so we get all that finally settled down, and I'm, I'm over the top frustrated. I didn't finish my work. Leslie's frustrated with me because she needed help with the kids, understandably, because she was making dinner, and the kids brought the frustration home from school. And then in that moment, the food is finally placed in front of one of the kids, and the kid was, I don't remember how it was stated, but it was basically, you know, ooh, that's gross. L- let me just offer an idea to you. Sin is not merely a single action. It's a poison that just keeps infecting. Right now, and I know, like, having a bad day isn't sin. But have you ever heard the old adage, hurt people hurt people? Hurt people hurt—they just hurt people. Now, I don't know, even at school, the situation that happened where there was a hurt feeling— I don't know what that other little kid went through in their home to bring that frustration to the school to make fun of other kids. I have no idea. But I do know this. It's like a poison. And if you think you're innocent of it, remember the last time you were cut off in traffic. Remember the last time somebody was mad at you because you were going too slow and they flipped you off as they drove past you. Did it infect your heart in any way? Dude, it is a poison that spreads. And this is true when you look through history. Now, as as light as it is to talk about it in a family, the reality is nations go to war and kill each other, which justifies more killing, which justifies more revenge, which justifies more hurt. People are It is a limitless poison that just spreads and grows and grows and grows. Revenge upon revenge, upon hoarding, upon taking. This is the story of how sin infects humanity. Be it in a tiny, small way with a little family or nations wanting revenge on nations that have hurt them. Whether it's the dropping of a nuclear bomb or the kick under a table It's the poison that just grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. All right, let's pause on that idea, right? And do a quick review leading up to this moment. Humans were given a divine purpose. Like in the creation account, humans were given a divine purpose. We covered this in detail a few weeks ago. And our divine purpose is basically this. We were to creatively harness the potential of the cosmos from a heart that mirrored God, right? So the way we did this in the service a few weeks ago is I said, you know, you were created to create. Then I asked you to repeat it. Say, I am created to create. So let's do this again. Say, I am created to create. Here we go. I am created to create. You are. You are. One of the reasons why sin is so effectively grown in humans is because we are designed by God to be creative. Whether it is with love and charity or with revenge and hatred, whether it's with bitterness, we just can limitlessly come up with ways to grow it. The foundation, what we discovered a few weeks ago, the foundation of our limitless call to create was literally intended by God to simply bring the heart of God into all things. That's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to, we were created out of love, out of charity, a loving family, birthed humanity, breathed into the dust, and the ordered dust becomes sentient at some level. And we were supposed to become agents of that creative goodness in the whole world and maybe even beyond. But we were deceived. And we were taught to supplant the honor of God with our newly corrupted appetites. And what we talked about a few weeks ago was this. We now harness our creative potential in We now harness our creative potential in really dark ways. Every good gift of God, from sexual intimacy to complex governments, has supplanted selfless charity with selfish hoarding. And what we find is that God must do something about this engine of destruction called fallen man. We talked about this too a few weeks ago. But can you imagine if left limitlessly unbound, our destruction would be cosmically hoarded. What if Hitler never died? What if the revenge from one group to another group, what if those generations never died away and it could just increase and increase and increase and increase and increase and increase, and increase, and increase with more violence, more readily, more rapidly, with more technology? I mean, do you, do, you, do you realize even today, you can go read through this, it's really interesting, one of the primary drivers for technology, all this really cool technological advancement, our phones, you know what drives a lot of this advancement? War. They need more efficient, quicker ways to communicate, and then it trickles down to us and other useful tools. You know what drives out the fact I was reading the other day? Um, the fast advancement of the internet, like so, being able to take an image buckle it down as small as possible and recode it and get it to somebody else's computer one of the primary drivers of technology is the porn industry like our appetites are leading the way in us figuring out new and creative ways to to exploit humanity and to exploit the land this is what we do I'm not saying it's the only driver, but it's one of the primary drivers. So what do we do with this in mind? We have this limitly expanding, ever-growing, the creativity of humanity is now being used in such destructive ways. With this in mind, let's go to Genesis 6, 9 through 14. These are the generations of Noah. I do want to hit pause really quick. I am not going to read all of Genesis 6, all of Genesis 7, all of Genesis 8. I'm not going to read all of those chapters. I'm going to skip along starting in Genesis 6. So this is Genesis 6, 9 through 14. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, I do want to stop on this real quick. Notice how the text defines Noah. And we're going to talk about this again in a few minutes. Noah is not identified as being the smartest or the strongest or a war hero or really wealthy or really influential. What makes Noah uniquely capable of doing great things for God? Noah walked with God. Listen, I cannot tell you how central mere intimacy with God is. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how influential you are. I don't care how smart you are. None of those things are even on the radar of what is most important to God. The most important central thing that identified Noah as being significant in his whole generation Noah walked with God. Intimacy with God. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. That, verse 11, I just want to pause, that is a huge rabbit trail you could run down of how humanity became corrupt Verse 12, and God saw, which I'm not going to do this morning, and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold I would destroy them with the earth. Now again, I just want you to be very aware when somebody hurts you and then you justify hurting them back and then they justify hurting you back and then you justify and the hurt just grows and grows and grows and grows. Have you ever been caught up in an anger moment and you know I need to stop feeling this way, but you just can't turn it off? Imagine the engine of violence and lust and hatred so high, they're literally being driven by this constantly. Humanity is deeply poisoned by sin. All the creativity, all of the engine, all of it's being used for hoarding and revenge and and God says, I have, to, I have to turn this machine off. So he says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Again, there's so many rabbit trails. You can, How did he make the ark? What was it made out of? Did it, there's so many, how did he build it? What tools could he have used? Is there any way that he could have carried trees that large? There's a million questions. You are more than welcome to run down those rabbit trails. I'm going to keep the main idea of the text, the main idea of the sermon. Genesis 7, 11 through 16. By the way, there are some, there's some great literature on that. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on the day, on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind every winged creature they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Alright, I want to pause and point out a couple of things from the last part of Genesis 6 and the first part of Genesis 7. I want you to notice that God provides everything necessary to obey his call. From the architectural plans to the animals coming on their own. God is even the one who closes the door and seals them in to protect them. And and so I I do want to stop for just a second I realize there are many of us, many in our congregation, that it's like, man, they have an idea in their mind of something they maybe God has put in their heart, but God has not provided the means for that to happen yet. Listen, what God wants you to do today, he has provided for you to do. Be faithful with what you actually have in your hands rather than saying, I would be faithful if you would give me. Be faithful what God has actually put in your hands. And what he calls you to do, he will provide for you to do that. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that there were probably days Noah woke up, woke up and thought, oh, man, Lord. How are the elephants going to get, like, I'm sure those thoughts ran through his mind, but I'm telling you, God will provide what he's actually asking you to do. He will give you the ability to do it. God will not ask you to do something that will guarantee your failure. He wants, he wants to make a way for his people that he calls to do things. The Hebrew word, this is actually really interesting. Kathy, we were talking about this with the worship arts team, and she pointed this out. The Hebrew word for pitch, so this is a little side idea, but I find it really interesting. The Hebrew word for pitch, kofar, is really interesting. It's a noun form. It simply means a covering. So the idea here is that God puts a special covering on those who carry his heart. So it's almost like the word anointing. So what carries the boat is in a sense the obedience and the anointing of God. I do want to make this statement. The Old Testament is fantastic. And, and I don't mean that necessarily in the colloquial way, like it's really cool, though that is true too. I mean it is fantastical. It is. There are parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament too. Like the virgin birth, it's that's fantastic. It's like beyond what makes even sense. Jesus rising from the dead. It's beyond what even. There are parts of the Old Testament. And you're like. This is beyond human understanding. And the way they talk about the pitch being laid on the inside and out. It's almost like it was being consecrated to God. And that becomes the engine that makes this whole thing actually work. Maybe the way to say it would be this. It was not human intelligence that saved them. It was It wasn't human intelligence that ultimately saved him. It it was humility. Genesis 7, 23 through 24. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on earth another 150 days till it all settled down. A couple things to point out from this. Humanity was so perverted by sin, all their thoughts, right? Going back to this big idea, all their thoughts and actions were violence, hoarding, and revenge. All right, I just want to circle back around to the big idea. Sin is not merely a single action. It is a poison. For the sake of all creation... God had to end this ever-increasing destructive creativity. Okay, now let's take little things that may even be personal in your heart. I'm going to invite Josh up and, and pull some of these ideas together here. What if the lust that you battle with... Had no limits to it. What if the hoarding that you struggle with, like being generous, is really difficult for you? You know, it's like, I gotta have as much as I can in my account, save all that I can, the fear of, of not being taken care of. Like, what if that was limitless? What if your struggle with an addiction? had no boundary to it? What if your anger with your ex was not capped? What if humanity was filled with the creative engine of God that he put in us, poisoned by sin, with no off-valve? And see, we think we're, we think we're above it. It's, it's really easy for us to sit in a seat and go, oh, that's for them. But, but I don't actually battle with anything that hurts humanity. Oh, my gosh. I, so, how blind we are. This week, uh, I had something come to me. The little devices that you hold in your hand, these phones, uh, they're made out of a a rare element called cobalt. Cobalt. How many of us hold these? I mean, even right now in the church service. The slavery, abuse, human mutilation. I mean, there's right now, the technology you hold in your hands, the rare elements that you use right now in your hands... More of this is coming out. Like, there are young moms with babies strapped to their back, bare feet, mining in cobalt mines to get your stuff. The babies are suffocating while they're on their mother's back to be able to put the tech in your hands that we just turn a blind eye to. Like, like, listen. There's the overt big things that we see. also participate in massive complex engines that cause suffering that we're just blind to you don't even see it and you don't want to see it you're offended when people bring things up you you don't want to ever admit I might actually be a part of a system that's causing suffering too we don't want to even admit to it not us not me I wonder, I mean, like, it's so incredibly important that we understand God's rescue plan was centered not primarily on the man. Like, he didn't pick Noah because Noah was really smart, and he could figure out the problems of humanity and try to make it work better. He didn't pick Noah because Noah was extremely wealthy. He might have been these things. We have no idea. It wasn't important to the text. And he had the money to be able to pay people better or to be able to rightly hire or to balance out economic. I mean, those things might be true, but it's not important in the text. He didn't pick Noah because he was stronger than the rest and he was a good, I mean, that might be true, but it's not important in the text. God's rescue plan was centered not primarily on the man, but it was centered on the posture of a right heart. A posture of a right heart, a right heart. Noah stood out as a man who walked with God. Maybe another way to say it should be really clear, he literally spent significant time with God. That's the idea. Walked with is literally like be present, spend time with God. If you think your right understanding of the world around you is going to come from four hours of watching Fox News or CNN or whatever, if you think the right understanding of the world is going to come from hours of news watching, your heart is not in the right place according to the main ideas of this text. I'm not saying it's wrong to check out the news, but the main way you understand what's actually happening is you walk with God. That's how you actually understand what's actually happening in the world. That's how you actually understand what's actually happening in your heart. That's how you actually understand what's actually happening in the world around us. I mean like, walk with God. That's the core. This is a person who is leaning more into the nature of God than fallen man and fallen man solutions. And then the last thing I want to point out from this is even in the rescue plan when they get into the ark, I just want to be really clear. Again, it wasn't man's wisdom that locked him in and sealed him in. I mean, God is the one who shuts the door and protects him. God desires to protect that heart. That's what's immeasurably valuable to him. Your bank account doesn't care whether you have a hundred thousand or a million or two million. I mean, what you do with it matters. The heart matters. But the amount of money you have is not your definer of your worth and value. Neither is your strength. Neither is your age. The definer of your real worth and value is your heart. That's what he wants to protect. Genesis 9, 11 through 13, I'm almost done. I establish my covenant with you after all this is done, that never again shall I shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. Two quick things from that. One, the word bow references a war bow. It's the same word. Now, not all scholars agree with this for sure. But some scholars see the word for war bow as very intentional. It's like intentionally symbolic. Especially since the bow is pointed into the sky. Which the children's Bible points this out interestingly. And so the idea again and I get that this is debated. Not all scholars agree on this. But the idea if you take it symbolically like the rainbow, the war bow hung in the sky pointed now up in the sky would be this, the full renewal of humanity will require God himself to come down and take on himself the full poison of sin. So, there I am with my family, sitting at the dinner table, and... Something that happened at school spurred a bad attitude at home, started a fight between my kids, which made my wife frustrated, understandably, because she's making dinner and she can't do that. So I had to stop work early, and I had to come over and help the kids out. And then finally, you know, the little girl needs attention and changing. And, and then I come, and then very soon I sit around the table. And by the time I sit around the table, all the tension is so high, and then food gets placed down, and yucky, it's gross. Like, I don't, I don't want it or you maximize it out to nations who take revenge, justify revenge, who justify revenge, who justify revenge. People groups are hurt. They're taken into captivity. They're put into slavery. They're, you name it, all the way down through the biblical accounts. There's always a reason to hurt back. Who will be the person who says, Stop. Stop. And, and and I don't want to give away the end of the story. But God himself is going to come down. And he's going to functionally say, all of your revenge, all of your hurt, all of your twisted versions of justice, all of it, every bit, every anger you have on your ex, every hurt that you have with the nation, every reason you hate the political party, this one, or all of your revenge that deems revenge, that deems revenge, that deems hurt, that deems all of your hoarding, all of your addictions that have been misshaped by these, all of that brokenness, I will be the one who just takes it all. And I'm not gonna use all of that hatred and revenge and hurt. I'm not gonna execute it on another person or I'm gonna take it out on this. I'm literally going to take it all on myself. Somebody needs to be the person that says, stop. No more. In every home, around every dinner table, somebody needs to walk with God that goes, stop. Two thoughts I'm gonna leave you with. If you would, grab the next steps card. Um, Do grab the next steps card. I want you to think about this. Think about this, think about this. Reflect on it. Grab the next steps card. Pull it out. Think about it. If you wanna leave it up here and we'll pray over it with you. If you wanna take it home, that's fine too. But think about this. Remember, sin is not merely a single action. It is a poison. Two questions to consider, um, and they they build off each other, okay? So I'm going to go through both of them, then I'm going to let you go. The first one is this. Man, even now, Holy Spirit, by your grace, you lead our hearts. Where in your life is the poison of sin justifying more sinful actions? Where is the poison of sin justifying more sinful actions in you? And again, I don't want to fast forward too fast through this whole series, but what do you think Jesus would say about that? Just reflect on that. Write on that. Pray on that. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital Next Steps card at EncounterTrinity.com slash Steps.